want you to think about the things for a minute in life that you can certainly count on. What are the things that you can count on? The certainties of life. Perhaps you can count on your husband to make you coffee in the morning. Perhaps wives or husbands, you can count on your wife when you get home from a hard day's work to give you a hug and a kiss when you get home. If you have kids under about the age of five, perhaps you can count on dads when you come home or moms when you come home that you're going to get a hug. I don't know how it works after that. You can also count on some other things. You can count on the bill collector wanting their bills paid on time, but if they owe you something, it's going to take a while. You can count on 1488 traffic, especially at like Kirkendall or 2978. You can count on it. You can count on, hopefully today, the Astros beating the Yankees, sweeping them up. What do you think? I'm sorry, Emily. We got a Yankees fan over here. I saw her this morning. I just thought, we're going to go there. There's a lot of things in life we can count on. There's other things that we can't count on. But there are a couple things that are absolutely certain in life. You know the saying. In this world, there's only two things that are certain, death and taxes. We're willing to talk often about taxes and how much we're taxed, but we don't really like talking about death. We don't talk about death. We avoid talking about death. We pretend it's not there. Even at funerals and even as Christians, we like talking about life and not death. Perhaps it's, there, there's likely many reasons for that. If you think about centuries before us, they had to stare at death all the time. Death of a child because of a disease. We don't really have to stare at death. We can look at a hospital and we often think of death in medical terms, but death certainly comes to all. We live in a world not so concerned really with the afterlife, but only life here today. J.I. Packer, a great theologian as well as writer, he wrote probably a top 10 book of all time, if you're a believer, called Knowing God. And he says this, his, this is his commentary about the world we live in and how we don't like to talk about death. He says this, in today's world, death is the great unmentionable just as sex was 100 years ago. Death is not ordinarily spoken of outside of medical circles. To invite discussion of it, even in the church, is felt to be bad form. It has become conventional to think as if we're all going to live in the world forever, and to even mention the case of death as a reason for doubting the goodness of God. And in doing this, we part company with the Bible, with historic Christianity, and with the basic principle of right living, which is namely this, that only when you know how to die can you truly know how to live. That's true. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 1 through 10, that's where we're at today. Solomon is going to talk about death. It's interesting because last week, Solomon was talking about, and often has in the book of Ecclesiastes, he's often been talking to us about the mysterious uncertainties of life, but he turns the page today in chapter 9, and he talks about life's most certain thing, death. Be encouraged, Christ Community Church. Aren't you glad you came today? We're going to talk about death. Ecclesiastes 9, 1 through 10. Have you considered death in light of eternity? Do you consider death in the way that you choose to live, or do you hide from the reality of death? And why, if so, do you do that? In chapter 9, verses 1 through 10, we're going to see who death comes for. We're going to see why death is. We're going to see what hope we have for the afterlife, as well as how should we live in light of death. 
What does Solomon have to say? Ecclesiastes 9, verses 1 through 10. Let me read it. Verse 1. But all this I laid to heart, examining it, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is to love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all. Since the same event, Solomon's talked about this being death all the way through this book. The same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, the good and the evil, the clean and the unclean, the one who sacrifices and the one who does not sacrifice. The good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears and he who shuns taking an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to us all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. See also Genesis 3. And after that, they all go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for the living dog is better than the dead lion. Don't you know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward. For the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Pretty bleak. Look at verse 7 through 10. Go, so therefore, go, eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine and with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking from your head. Enjoy life with the wife of whom you love. Amen. All the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because this is your portion in life. And in your toil at which you toil under the sun, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom and shield to which you are going. We're going to talk about death. The first thing you need to know about death is this, from verses really 1 through 6. See, sin's curse that Solomon alludes to and the madness and the evil of the human heart See, sin's curse means death will eventually come for us all. Death will come for us all. Look at back at verses 1 through 3, really specifically at 2, th- 2 and 3. There are like six things here that he compares. He's like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at the end of the day. The same event happens to who? The righteous and the wicked, the good and the evil, the clean and the unclean, the one who sacrifices in the Old Testament, the Old Testament, The one who does not sacrifice to the good one, to the sinner, he who swears and takes an oath. So the same event, death, happens ultimately to us all. We can count on it. It is certain. It's interesting when you look through the book of Ecclesiastes, you see a number of themes. You see the theme of death through this book. In chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, you see that death comes to the wise and the foolish, You see in chapter 7 that death comes to the beast or the animal and the children of man, us. That there's breath and then there's not. You see him speaking about death in a poem where the seasons of life, someone is born and someone dies. You see the wicked in the book of Song of Solomon. Excuse me, what book are we in? Ecclesiastes, we're in the book of Ecclesiastes. I didn't get much sleep last night. Ecclesiastes, we see him talking about the wicked and how their life is pro- Shortened because they go to Deacon Baldy's too much. And then in chapter 8, last week, here's what we saw about death. Even the king has no 
control. No power of the day of his death. See, our days are numbered, but they're not numbered by us. They're numbered by God. And when we look at the biblical narrative, we have to ask the question, why is this? Why does death come to us all? And you know the answer. Sin. Because of sin, there is death. This is what the Bible teaches us in the opening pages of Scripture, that God made the creation and he made all things good. And we said, it's not good enough. We're going to go our own way. And they fall into sin. And sin leads to what? It leads to death. You get to chapter 5, and what does the Scripture say? It says, and they died. And they died. It's a genealogy. It's really encouraging. And they died all the way through. Old Testament, you see this theme of death, but you also see this theme of hope. From the very pages of Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve fall into sin, you immediately see the hope of Messiah to come. You see the promise of Messiah to come. And all through the Old Testament, they're awaiting Messiah. When is he coming? You see the bloodline of Christ. You see him tracing it. You see him relying on it. You see when people die in the Old Testament, covenant in the Old Testament who were faithful to God, who trusted in God, that they went to Sheol, and the New Testament tells us that there was a great divide in the resting place of the dead, where they went to their fathers, those who believed and those who didn't. And then you come to the New Testament, and you see a text like Romans 5. We have this text here. Why death? Look at it with me. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 through 14 says this, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. This is the disease that can't be cured. It spread to all men, to you and me, because all sinned. That we have a sin nature that we have. We've been corrupted. That you're just like your parents all the way back to Adam and Eve. Not just by nature, but also by what we do. Look at verse 13. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those sinning, was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one was, who was to come. Who's the one to come? We'll get to the rest of this text in a minute. It's the Savior. It's Messiah. And so clearly we see that death comes because of sin, that's not what the atheist teaches. That's not what the humanist teaches, that death has always been. No, death has not always been. Death came because of our sin, and God will redeem it one day. I don't know about you. Um, I like playing Monopoly, except that it takes forever. I like playing Monopoly. I'm super competitive, too, so I forget it's a game, and everybody gets mad at me. But you know what? I, I'm competing. I'm trying to get Park Place, trying to get Broadway, as many places as possible. I want to put rental homes on it so I take all your money. I want to take hotels so I win. And at the end of the game, I have everybody's money, everybody's property. It's mine. And then I remember when we're boxing everything up, all those rental properties, all those hotels, all that money, it's going in the box with everybody else's stuff. the way life and death is. In life, we're 
playing Monopoly, trying to get more and more and more, but in the end, it's the Pine Box. How does that land on you? When you're playing the game, do you even remember that? When it's over, there's a pine box. How does that land on you? Do you ignore it? Do you pretend it's not there? Do you, or, or maybe in the other way, maybe you fixate on it. Do you consider sin's curse as you're playing the game? That it, does it motivate you? I remember in college, before college, I was going on a recruiting trip. And back then, and maybe it was just where I was from, people didn't fly like every day back in the day. My first time to fly in an airplane from Llano, Texas, y'all, redneck, was when I was 18 years old and I was flying from Houston to Dallas on a recruiting trip. And I had been raised in the church. I know the truth of the gospel. I was raised in a Southern Baptist church, so I heard about hell a lot. So I knew I was supposed to be scared But it was interesting how the spirit began to work when I was a little older and a little older teenager. And I remember getting on that plane going, I'm really scared to death. Nobody knows, but I'm scared to death. What's going to happen? Is all the things that I've heard as a kid true? If I die and this plane doesn't make it, and no lie, y'all, halfway through this plane ride, my first plane ride, we hit crazy turbulence between Houston and Dallas when we're getting closer to Dallas. And I thought we were going down. You know, I can handle turbulence when it's going up and down, but when you start going sideways, you start praying. It made me come into direct contact and thought with eternity. You ever had those moments, those life and death moments that make you stop and think about the grave and make you stop and think about life and death? A couple years later, came to faith in Christ. God used that in my life. But listen, unless your belief system, whatever belief system you got, unless it deals with death, you can't really live, really. You think about the atheist or the humanist, you got this life and then that's it. Your brain stops working and that's it. Is that, is that what the Christian believes? No, there's life after death. There's existence after death. Look, keep looking there in verses four through six, and he's just going to say, hey, listen, Like he did before, he's going to say there's ways in which death is better than life. Here he's going to say, no, there's ways in which life is better than death. And so he's just practical, low grade, verse 4 through 6. Here's the reality. Here's why living and breathing is better than dying. Look at it with me. Verse 4 through 6. He was joined to all the living has hope. If you've passed, you don't have hope. If you're still breathing, there's hope for whatever your circumstance is. And look at this. It says, a living dog is better than a dead lion. I knew it. I knew that dogs biblically were better than cats, even big ones. But that's not what it's saying at all. Dang. You know what it's saying? Back then in ancient times were dogs domesticated, puppies, fur, what do you call them? I don't even know what people call them. Fur bun. What are they? Help me out. Fur babies, whatever we call them. No, I don't call them that. So so they weren't domesticated then. I learned this lesson really quick. So our youngest is adopted from Ethiopia. And so in Ethiopia, dogs aren't your friend. And so when Samuel came home, we had this, she passed a few years ago, we had this little miniature dachshund named Lady. If you've ever been to our house, you've heard her bark. And he was terrified of Lady. It's a little miniature dachshund. She's got a big bark, but she she wouldn't hurt a fly. You come in our house, she's just going to pee on the ground. 
as big as she gets. Like, he's terrified. He's terrified because dogs in Ethiopia were mean and scavengers. That's the way they were in the ancient world. What Solomon is saying is it's better even the scavengers, mean dog that hunts and comes around to hurt is better than a dead lion. How does the Bible depict a lion? How do we think of lions? We think of lions, the, the beast of the kingdom, the top of the food chain, the lion of the tribe of Judah. So what he's saying is even the scavenous dog has life is better than the lion that is upheld in that culture. So it's better to be alive and breathing than not is what he's saying. And then he goes on. He says, but the dead know nothing. There's knowledge. There's no more knowledge. There's no more memory. Love, hate, envy has perished. No more share in this under the sun. And I don't know about you, but I start thinking here about all the people that have gone before me and my family, my friends who have passed. And how I wish I could hear them laugh again or cry again or tell that story again. They're not living. And maybe even as people we know that have gone to be with the Lord and we know that there's in a, they're in a better place, it's hard to remember that. It's hard to remember them. And there's grace for that, but there's a reality to that. And I would also say in a room with this many people in it, as we think about our own lives and we think about those moments and maybe even seasons sometimes that we've had where we go, it would just be better if I wasn't breathing. You see the hope right here? You have hope if you're living. Listen, if that's you, that has been you, if that's one of your friends, living is better. And we're going to get to even better in the next point. But it's worth living. And if you need help, come talk to us. If you need help with that, find a friend, talk to somebody. But living it's better. So listen, sin's curse means death will eventually come for us all. But if death is certain and it comes from us all, what of the afterlife? Do we have hope anywhere, anyway, from the afterlife? Or is it just dust to dust? Where's the hope? And this is what we know and believe as Christians. Here's the answer. If you know Christ, or if you're seeking him, or if you don't know Christ, here's the truth. Jesus offers rescue. He offers rescue from sin and death, the curse of sin and death, and he gives you life. He gives you eternal life. He gives you abundant life here. It's Jesus. For the Christian, when you think about this, you think about the Old Testament even, you think about sin and death and promise Messiah you think about the book of Ecclesiastes in chapter 3, after he said, hey, listen, possessions, pleasure, knowledge, none of them do it for me, not as a means to living. And then he comes to chapter 3, and he says, here's why, because God has put eternity in our hearts, and we know there's something that satisfies more. We don't know what it is, but it satisfies us more than our possessions and pleasure and knowledge and work. It's him because he's put eternity in our hearts. He's pointing toward an afterlife. He's pointing toward an existence after physical life under the sun. And we see it in Ecclesiastes in the bookends. We see it in chapter 12 where he talks about your life will go from dust to dust. But then he says there's one shepherd. 
the word shepherd there we get is Messiah. There's one Messiah, and while he will bring judgment, he will also bring life. Even in the echoes of the Old Testament, there is talk and echoes of life after death and the belief in life after death, and we see it in full circle in the New Testament for the wages of sin is death. We know that part. Wages of sin is death, but there's life, the free gift of life in Christ. He gives us life, eternal life. We see it in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. We're talking about a curse, right? We're talking about death because of the curse. And it says, Jesus has redeemed us from the curse because he became a curse for us and died on the tree. It's cursed. Jesus became the curse. We see it in 1 Peter chapter 1. Not only did Jesus die, but he was raised to life, which gives us, 1 Peter 1, 3, and 4, a living hope of resurrection, of eternal life, of an inheritance that is waiting for us in the future. That's your hope, Christian. And you know, we were in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, that reminds us that there's death because of sin, but look at verse 15 through 17. Here's the life. Look at this. In the very next turn, we have this disease of sin that has corrupted the whole human race, that death has spread to all men. But look at 15, Romans chapter 5, 15 through 17. But, contrast. Anytime you see that in the Bible, there's a contrast. But the free gift is not like the trespass of Adam and our sin. For if many died through one man's trespass, that's what's happened to us, that's why we die, much more has the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of the one man Jesus Christ, amen, abounded for the many, you and me. And that free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation to all of us. That's why we die, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Justification is this, that he's made us, declared us right before him because of Christ, not because of our merit, but because of Christ's merit. It's a beautiful truth. Verse 17 for if because of one man's trespass, Adam, death reigned through one man, it comes to you and me, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. That's our hope. That because of Christ, we have hope. Listen, do you know this rescue? If you don't know Christ, you should fear death. But if you know Christ, you need not fear death. The appointment that you have when you die on effectively your third birthday, your first birthday is your birth, your second birthday is being born again, your third birthday is your appointment with the Savior where you get to be in heaven with him and rest and worship. Do you know that rescue? Do you know that sure promise? Do you know the hope of heaven? I don't know if you listen to Christian music. I love have kind of top five, top ten people I listen to, Spotify. Phil Wickham. I don't know if you've ever listened to Phil Wickham. But last year he wrote this song. He wrote this song called The Hymn of Heaven. Listen to the words. I'm not, you know when you hear words you want to sing them, but I can't sing. There will be a day 
when death will be no more, standing face to face with he who died and rose again. And on that day, we will join the resurrection. We will stand by the heroes of the faith with one voice, a thousand generations. Think about that. Sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. So let it be today that we raise the hymn of heaven with angels and the saints. We raise a mighty roar. Glory to our God who gave us life beyond the grave. Life beyond the grave. When the lights turn out, it's just a shadow. That's the hope of the Christian. Nancy Guthrie, I'm giving you some different authors that you should read. Nancy Guthrie paints beautiful pictures of gospel truths. She wrote an article a few years ago, I remember reading, and it really talked about why we should talk about death. Not just death in general, but our own death as believers in Christ, which we don't like to do. And she said a number of things, and I want to share them with you. She said the first thing, the first reason you need to look, even as a believer, at death is because it is the outward sign of our separation from God. And apart from God's grace, you're going to fear. You don't need to fear. Because this outward sign of separation that's all around you, it's at the funeral, it's at the graveside. It reminds you of the grace of Christ. And if you're here this morning and you don't know that, there should be a fear, but there's hope. The second thing she said was this. For Christians, death sting is taken away. If you've ever been at a funeral of a believer, it is hard and it is hurt. And you weep and you mourn, but you don't do it as people without hope. You do it with people with hope. And that sting is gone. If you've been to a funeral, a memorial service for somebody who doesn't know Christ, that sting is present because you know what the end is. You know what's going to happen to the person. There's still the sting, and that's motivation for the Christian to share the gospel and proclaim the gospel and be about soul winning and be about the great commission. We need to talk about death for that reason. We also need to talk about death as Christians. Because we don't know when it's coming. Remember the king, King Solomon, chapter 8? I have no power or control in knowing when death is coming for me. We don't know, and it calls us, New Testament calls us to be ready, to live for Christ, to keep short accounts with God and, and with others. And last, it calls us, when that time comes, to die well. If God's grace allows us to die well, if we know it's coming, to encourage others to die well, to go be at home, to be absent with the body, Jesus says, is to be present with the Lord. We need to talk about death more. We've talked about the certainty of death. We've also talked about the certainty of what Christ brings because of the cross and resurrection. But how am I supposed to live? How am I supposed to live between that? Between the day that I die in heaven, how am I supposed to live? Look at verses 7 through 10. It tells us. Here's your thought. Your thought is this. Verse 7 through 10 of Ecclesiastes 9. We need to live life enjoying and making the most of God's good gifts. Look at this. Solomon says, in view of death, 
You need to live. You need to keep breathing. And here's what you need to do when you keep breathing. Go eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Listen, let me, let me translate this for us. And listen, does God want us to live for him? Does he want us to be obedient? Does he want us to pursue Christ in holiness? Absolutely. But we can enjoy it. We can enjoy it. Look at this text. Let me translate it a little bit for you. Here, here's what it might look like. To eat bread, to drink wine, and to enjoy. Friday night after a hard week's work, go to H-E-B. Go to the wine section. If you're a wine drinker, don't get the $10 bottle of wine every time. Get, get Caravan. Have you ever had Caravan? It's really good. 40, 50 bucks every once in a while. Go do this. Okay, get the wine. Go over there to the, where the steaks are. Get you a big old ribeye. Get two of them, one for your wife. If the kids have been good that week, get them one. All right? Bring it home. Get your cast iron grill. Heat that bad boy up. Throw a stick of butter. No, throw two sticks of butter in there. Some oil, some rosemary, some garlic. Three and a half minutes on one side, three and a half on another. Don't do it longer than that. I know it's red, ladies. It's better that way. Cattle ranch. Enjoy a steak. Enjoy wine. Don't feel guilty about it. Enjoy life, the good gifts of life. Look at verse, keep looking. Let your garments be always white. Not oil be lacking in your head. This is cultural. I, I might not recommend doing this. But here's what it means culturally. Here's what they wore when they went to parties. They wore white. And to smell a little better, they put on the cologne of oil. Your essential oils work, okay? So they went to parties, and they went and hung out with their friends. And so maybe do the same thing. Maybe to go to H-E-B. Have people over every once in a while. Don't just be on Friday, Saturday night. Just don't be on your, your tablets or your phones and be a hermit. Invite people over. Go to people's houses. Have a party. And some of you are like, that's a little risque. We're Christian. And listen. God wants us to live holy lives. He wants us to pursue purity. He wants us to live for him. We're going to be in the book of Ephesians in the spring. And he's going to say some things like, don't even name things that people do in private. Don't coarse jest about things. So there's a pursuit of holiness and there's an enjoyment of the good gifts of life that God gives. Enjoy life. Is what Solomon's saying. Verse 9. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Look at the weird contrast. All the days of your vain life. Enjoy your wife. Take her out to dinner. Go on a vacation with her. Go dancing with her. My wife's still asking me. She's going to have us. If she was here, she'd have this sign out. When are you going to take me dancing? Enjoy her. Love her. Care for her, treasure her, enjoy it. I know, life's hard. I know, we just go through life. We're like, hey, how'd you, I come to church. Hey, how's your week? And I'm trying to think about it. Well, it's just the same week, and that's okay. There's a monotony, Solomon even says, about life, the cycle of life. But pause and enjoy it. 
This is hard for Christians sometimes, isn't it? We're serious. We're like fundamental evangelicals, and we have to take things serious. We treat it kind of like food. You know, if something's really good for me, my default is it can't be any good. Something's bad for, if something doesn't taste good, I just assume that it's good for me. And oftentimes as Christians, we operate fully that way. If something's fun, it's too fun, must be unholy. Solomon's saying no. Let me give you some biblical proof of this beyond Ecclesiastes. When you open your Bible, what is God doing? He creates the world, and every single day, what does he say? It's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then he makes Adam and Eve at the top of the creation. And he says it's very good. Man, wife, together, good, very good. And then what does he do? He puts them in the garden of delight. That's what the word Eden means. It means delight. He puts them in the garden. And what are they supposed to do there? They're supposed to toil. They're supposed to work as a delight. You're like, I don't know. How do you pull that off? They're supposed to enjoy food that God has given them in the garden as a delight. They're supposed to enjoy one another in relationship as a delight. So what's God's perspective on our lives as human beings? Beings made in his image. Delight. And yes, there's a brokenness that happens in chapter 3 that we have to deal with, with hardship, with work, and relationships. But it doesn't take away the fact that God wants us to enjoy life. Look at the life of Jesus. Don't think of the 80s movies about Jesus who was the stoic guy who was always serious. Maybe think about the chosen. I think they get that part of it right better. He's joyful. Think about what Jesus was, they accused Jesus, the Pharisees, the prudes, the ones who had no fun, they accused Jesus of having too much fun. Hey, he's, he's a drunk. He wasn't a drunk. He's a partier. That was the accusation of Jesus. So if you need Bible, there's some of it. I grew up, uh, where we grew up, we had a ranch truck and we had, it was old, but it could haul like cattle places. It was like a Chevy 3500 1992. It was a single cab. And I hated riding in this thing. Because it was so torqued up. And it, it could pull anything. We're talking about dirt roads. And, and, and its shocks were awful. Abs, you been in that truck? Even when I was young, I'm like, man, I'm going to have back problems. You're just bump, bump, bumps everywhere. And you feel every single one of them. Tension. And then my brother, he's like, he just gets everything free. He's an entrepreneur. He gets everything free. He got this like Cadillac UTV mule. It's like two rows. And we can go down the same dirt road. Heck, we could be chasing hogs in the pasture and big old holes. And the shocks were amazing. I don't know where he got this thing, but it was a smooth ride. So my question for you this morning, man, are you tightly wound Maybe naturally you're just tightly, tightly wound like the Chevy 3500. And everything is like this. Are you like that Cadillac mule that's smooth? Listen. What brand of Christianity? What brand were you raised on? 
Some of us were raised on the pretty tight brand of Christianity. Some of us were raised too loosely as well. What brand do you practice right now? Can you both enjoy the good gifts of this world and this life that God has still given, even in life under the sun, or is it one or the other? Some of us need the other message, though. We're enjoying life a little bit too much. But you have to enjoy the good gifts that God has given you. What brand of Christianity are you practicing? Do you need to lighten up? Do you need to tighten up? I told you about the airplane ride when I was fearful of death. It was my first plane ride. A couple years later, I came to Christ in college of all times, like three months before I turned 21, before I had plans for things. And one of my biggest hang-ups, just earthly hang-ups of coming to Christ was, man, all the Christ- most of the Christians that I observe, they're just no fun. They're just kind of prudes, and I don't want to live that way. And what I discovered after coming to Christ is that it wasn't that way at all. I could have more fun without all the booze and without all the craziness with people who had been saved by the blood of the land, who lived in the freedom that Christ offers, who could enjoy life normally without having other things to make it fun and come home the next night miserable. The Christian life can be joyful. I think God wants us to enjoy this life. There's a curse of death that Christ changes for us, the sin and curse. And with the time that we have to breathe, we can enjoy it. We can make the most of it. That's what I think Solomon is saying here. See, death is certain. Christ rescues us from sin and death for eternal life, but we can enjoy God's gifts today. Got a picture here, I think. Got a picture of uh, a cemetery. Do we have it back there? Huffman Cemetery. Huffman Cemetery is my family's cemetery. It's been there since 1884 on our land. First settlers, some of the first settlers in our county came there in like 1850s. The Laramores. The Moors, the Huffmans, the Simpsons, that's my mom's maiden name. Huffman Cemetery's been there a while. When you come out to, the, to our place, leave Lano, go on 71, out toward Brady, take a left on a county road, you go about three miles on paved road, and then you hit a, about a mile on dirt road. The first time I took my now wife there, she's like, where are you taking me? And you come over to this cattle guard, and what's facing you is that right there. You go down a hill, up a hill, and the entrance to our ranch is just to the left. But when you come in every single day to our place, you're staring at that cemetery. And then you go around the backside of this cemetery, and you go down the hill to our house when, you let, when we leave the house, you come up the hill and you see the cemetery and you go around and you leave it, you can't miss death. But it's interesting because growing up around it, when you have a family cemetery for your family, you got to take care of it. I remember when I was in third grade, my grandfather passed and he was buried in that cemetery. 
right by my house. And I remember days later coming back to see him, talk to him, even though I knew he wasn't there. And many days after that, and I remember my mom saying, you know what? Here's grandpa, her dad. I'm going to be buried right here. And if you want to, you and your family can be buried right here. And your brother and your other brother. I've known since I was a kid, likely where I was going to be buried, where my family's buried. We spent many a day up at this cemetery cleaning off graves that had been there since 1884. Little kids at the turn of the century who died very young of polio. Been able to take the kids out there and experience that. And you say, well, that sounds really morbid. The beauty was every day I... Every day that I came up that road or down that road, I was reminded not only of death, but I was reminded of their lives. And not only was I reminded of their lives, I was reminded that one day when I die, I'm not going to be in that grave. I'm going to be present with the Lord. I'm reminded that one day in the end, that far tree over there, I'm going to be buried right over there to the left. And that's to the east. And one day, Jesus is going to rise. And I'm going to go be with him. What do you believe about death? It's coming for you. It's coming for us all. Do you believe in the one who said this? John 11, 25 and 26. I, Jesus, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he may die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then Jesus asked the question, do you believe this? And I would ask that question to you today. Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? And he has died on a cross a cursed cross for your sin and my sin. And at his resurrection, because of his resurrection, your hope, your living hope can be resurrection too. That you can know, unlike the atheist, unlike the humanist, that there is life past the grave. Just as certain, just as certain as you will die, just as certain that Christ is raised from the dead and just as certain that he's purchased a place for you in heaven. Do you believe that message? Your takeaway today is this. You've got to know how to die before you can truly know how to live. See, Christ is our hope in life and in death. Let me pray.